I love spotting an absolute corker of a kit when I play football on Sunday mornings. Amongst a sea of Liverpool, Chelsea and United tops, every now and then I'll catch that beautiful Fluminense kit out of the corner of my eye. Or I'll be nutmegged by some trickster wearing a Nigeria 2018 World Cup kit. Or if I'm really lucky, I'll admire the Batistuta Fiorentina kit worn by the scorer as I stoop to pick the ball out of the net. Every fan remembers their club's iconic kits. It could be down to its bold colours, patterns or sponsor. Or perhaps it's because a particular club legend became synonymous with it. Or maybe it was worn during a period of enormous success for the club. Today on The Eleven, we discuss the best and worst kits in football, as well as the players who got to wear them. Hello, Ben. Yes, Arthur, I've been so looking forward to this episode. I think in many ways we're kind of in an age where football kits have become fashionable, particularly retro ones, and we're really looking forward to discussing some of the most iconic today. If you're new to the podcast, we are the 11. We name nostalgic and obscure footballers from decades gone by, uh, and we place them into teams with particular themes. So this is the iconic kits 11. Players from the past decades who have worn some of football's most wacky, bizarre, or just darn right wonderful football shirts. Uh, if you've got anyone you want to suggest, someone we missed out, then please do get in touch with us at 11pods on Twitter, uh, and we'd love to hear from you. We're actually wearing kits as well to mark the occasion. Arthur, I love that fetching Barcelona number. We are indeed actually a memorable trip to Barcelona with you, Ben, back in the day. I can't actually remember yeah. what year it was. Oh, I think it was 2012. 2012. Yeah. It's a Neymar kit, red and yellow striped number, uh, synonymous with Barcelona as a team, the Catalan colours, obviously. Mm. Um, and you're wearing a, a beautiful Mexico top, Ben. Oh, yes, I am. One that might well have uh, wend its way into this team, into the 4-4-2 formation. Yeah, uh, it's Mexico from the 98 World Cup. Think Luis Hernandez, Cuetamoc Blanco, uh, an iconic frontage. Definitely worth having a look at online if you haven't already. Right, starting us off in goal. Ben, who have you gone for? Yeah, I wanted to name a goalkeeper who wore an iconic Premier League kit. Uh, so the name first, Pavel Cernicek. Okay, that rings a bell. Was he Newcastle? Correct, yes. I'm thinking of the Newcastle 96-97 goalkeeper's kit. Um, I think wacky goalkeeper kits have been a figment of history, really. Um, I'm thinking back to David Seaman in 95-96, that England number with the kind of Technicolor Dreamcoat feel. Um, but Newcastle uh, in that year also wore an aqua blue splash shirt on, on a sort of grey and black camouflage. I don't know whether you remember that one. No, I don't remember that particular kit, but I do feel... I probably should have remembered it because typically, well, nowadays at least, they're usually just boring bright orange or bright yellow or bright blue or something. But for them to actually be patterned is quite unusual. Yeah, the 90s were the sort of garish era, really, for goalkeeper kits. Um, but my particular favourite, which I want to focus on, uh, was one that Cernicek wore in 96-97. Um, it had this yellow to pink gradiated fade 
uh, into a black skyline of Newcastle. Uh, an incredible scene, really. Uh, some of the major landmarks were featured. Sunset over the Tyne Bridge was the name of the concept for this kit. Uh, and of course, it was topped off with that classic Newcastle Brown Ale sponsorship logo. Um, it was actually voted uh, in the Newcastle Chronicle as the best ever Newcastle United goalkeeper jersey. Uh, so no surprise I've picked it for this 11, really. They actually had a really successful year in Newcastle when wearing this kit. They came second in the Premier League wearing it, had a wonderful team. David Ginola, uh, Les Ferdinand, Alan Shearer all played in that side. Um, but Cernicek was one of the characters that really made Newcastle the entertainers during the 90s. Uh, he was a Czech keeper. He also had stints at Sheffield Wednesday, Portsmouth and West Ham. Um, but he is best known for that first spell in England. He joined in 1991 from Banik Ostrava in his native Czech Republic. Uh, and he played 150 games over seven years at Newcastle. He was actually in and out of favour uh, as number one. He had competition from the likes of uh, Shaka Hislop um, and he made quite a shaky start to his time at the Toon. Um, a particularly noteworthy error used to follow him every month or so and it, it started to have the detrimental effect with the trust of the, um, of the defenders um, at Newcastle. He would make one error in particular in the UEFA Cup. This was actually in this jersey in 1996 in their defeat to Ferenc Varos, where he rushed out to try and clear a loose ball from a, a long goal kick and completely missed the ball and allowed Horvath to nick in and score. So a bit of a dodgy keeper in many ways, Arthur. You don't want to give space to Horvath when he's uh, deadly. When he's in the peak of it. He's the pomp of his career. He's so deadly that I couldn't find his first name in my research. <laughs> That's how deadly he was as a striker. Yeah, very true. Just to pick up on the kit a little more, I just, I mean, I've found it here online and it is absolutely brilliant. Mm. I think to have the Tyne Bridge uh, adorning the shirt like that. I just think it looks wonderful. It's bright colours. It's eye-catching. I think there's something to be said about a goalkeeper's top being bright and potentially distracting for the striker. And I think if you're clean through on goal and you suddenly see that bridge in your face, I think you're going <laughs> to... Yeah, gonna I think striker's known to be put off by uh, fine architecture on goalkeeper's kits. Uh, it's incredible. Very I mean, cute. I think it it is also testament to Newcastle that they've got an interesting enough skyline to be able to adorn their goalkeeping jersey. I mean, no disrespect, but I imagine... You know, if, if a, a place like Gillingham decided they wanted a similar kit, it might not be quite so appealing. Despite Cernicek's slightly dodgy start to life, as I say, he did go on to become a fan's favourite at Newcastle. He even returned to the club in 2006, receiving a standing ovation in his first game back. Uh, and his contributions at key moments didn't go unnoticed. In particular, he had the third highest penalty save ratio of any goalkeeper uh, in Premier League history. He saved five out of the 12 that he faced, um, only behind Manuel Almunia and Dimitri Karin of Chelsea on that list. Uh, and he did actually go on to write an autobiography, which he titled Pavel is a Geordie, uh, because he saw Newcastle as his adopted home, really. 
unfortunately this tale does have a tragic end which many people will know about he he suffered a cardiac arrest unfortunately in 2015 and, and passed away nine days later so tributes poured in from all of the Newcastle fan base and his fellow professionals that he played alongside. A hugely popular figure um, and a, a really a sort of nostalgic name, one that I really enjoyed researching. He wore that fantastic Newcastle kit. So moving on to left back, mm. and I've gone for Razvan Rat. <laughs> of course you have. Oh, classic Razvan. Uh, and actually, it's not for his brief stint at West Ham, uh, nor is it for his lengthy stint at Shakhtar. Not that their kit isn't iconic in itself, but I'd like to pick up on his short stay with Spanish side Rio Vallecano in 2013. Oh, okay. And I'll come on to that kit a little later, uh, just a bit about Razvan first. As I say, he did have a six-month, 15-game stint with West Ham in 2013. Mm. Um, It wasn't a particularly productive stay for him. Um, However, he definitely has to be considered one of the most successful Romanian football players of all time, I think. His career began in the Romanian youth system. While he was wanted by the country's most successful team in Stau Bucharest, At the time, they didn't pay their youth players. And so he would have had to support himself uh, living in Bucharest. And so he decided that wasn't for him. And he joined Sporting Pitesti. He was actually a little bit more of an attacking player, turned into a left back as his career went on. But he was a bit of a winger at that stage. And he actually scored six goals in his first game for them. And that meant it wasn't long before he was snapped up by Rapid Bucharest. Um, In his five seasons there, he was part of teams that won two of the three Romanian titles that Rapid have won in their history. Uh, His career then begins to closely follow that of legendary manager, who we've discussed in this podcast before, Mircea Lucescu, who was his manager at Rapid and then brought him to Shakhtar Donetsk. So he had pretty much that same career trajectory as the unbelievably successful Romanian manager. He won seven league titles, five Ukrainian Cups, three Super Cups and the UEFA Cup across his 10 seasons with Shakhtar. He also accumulated 113 caps for Romania uh, across his career. Three of those caps were in Euro 2008, where Romania were eliminated. But in what has to be described, I think, as the archetypal group of death, they were paired with France, Italy and the Netherlands. I don't think you can get much more difficult than that. No, that's almost impossible. And it's interesting you should mention Euro 2008, actually, because just the mention of Razvan Rat, I think of things like major international tournaments, the Champions League. I'd actually forgotten he played for West Ham, to be honest with you. Yes, I think it's good to remember him in conjunction with that enormously successful Shakhtar Donetsk team. Moving on to that iconic kit, Mm. um, the Rio Vallecano stay was pretty short-lived. He was only actually there for about 25, 26 games in all. Um, however, I desperately wanted to mention this kit. Rio Vallecano is a club known for their strides towards social justice. Mm. Um, they put a rainbow on their 2015-16 third kit with each colour representing a different marginalised group in society. Wow. So they had red for those tackling cancer, 
orange for disabled people, yellow for those who have lost hope, green for people striving to protect the environment, blue for those fighting against child abuse, and violet for the victims of domestic violence, whilst of course the rainbow itself was in support of the LGBTQ plus community. As well as that, they donated seven euros from the sale of each shirt to charities fighting each of those causes. So it stands for an awful lot. And not only that, it looks absolutely wonderful. Oh, I'm just it's looking rainbow. at it. It's brilliant. Rainbow it's on a fantastic. black background makes it stand out so well. It, not only is this for such a great cause, but um, or causes rather, but it looks stunning, doesn't it? I've, I've, I'm really impressed with that pick. I'm so glad you got it in. And it's a story I, I never had heard before. Sadly, it didn't impact their uh, on-field performances because they finished 18th and were relegated. But Raz Van Rat was seen playing at Rio Vallecano alongside legendary ex-Man United players Bebe and Manucho. So uh, always wow. good. I was going to say there is a little bit of a theme with Rio Vallecano and players from the Premier League. I think Mohamed Diame's paid played for them. Michu, um, I think Falcao might be there at the moment, actually. Okay, so centre-back. Um, we've got one of our centre-backs up for grabs today. Um, if you haven't listened to this podcast before, we always leave one position up for grabs and we ask for some nominations from um, friends of the show, journalists, writers, um, sports personalities. So you'll have to wait a little longer for the first centre-back. But playing alongside him, uh, also at centre-half, I've gone for Lucien Matomo. Now, yeah, it's a name that made me chuckle when I I first came across it. He is, of course, a former Manchester City defender, uh, for those who uh, think it rings a bell. Uh, But I picked him actually for his time playing for his national team, Cameroon, and specifically the AFCON home kit in 2002. Um, Do you remember this vest kit, Arthur? Yes, I was just going to say, is it the vest? Because that is an incredible kit. Did they get fined for wearing that or something? <laughs> they certainly did. I, I'll come on to, to talk about that in a moment. But first, a little bit about Lucien. He was he was born in Douala in Cameroon, uh, and he played his football in the early days in his home country at a team called Tanera Yaounde. Now, I obviously hadn't heard of this side, but fascinatingly, their notable ex-players include Roger Miller, Rigobert Song and George Weyer, the uh, Liberian international and AC Milan player. So a really successful African side. Yeah, 100%. Uh, But he made his name in France playing for Saint-Étienne. In September 2001, he signed for Manchester City of the English First Division. That was for £1.5 million. And he made his debut in a 6-0 League Cup defeat of Birmingham City. So he must have thought he'd died and gone to heaven. He's joined this Manchester City side. Uh, They're making huge strides. The future is bright. But sadly for Lucy and Matomo, it wasn't. Um, He played 23 league games that season, um, helping them to win the first division title, but soon lost his place in the side to Sylvain Distan uh, once they were in the Premier League. Uh, His career started to take a decline at this point, and he became a bit part player in some of Europe's less competitive leagues before joining your side, Arthur Southampton. 
he joined them on a short-term deal while they were in the championship from 2007 to 2008, but his contract was cancelled in January due to his inability to break into the first team. That absolutely shocks me. I felt like I, I would know every player who'd signed Southampton <laughs> at least at least since the turn of the millennium. But no, no, I had absolutely no idea Lucien played for us. Well, <laughs> or didn't play for us. He didn't play for you. Yeah, more to the point. But he was on your books. Um, he ended up finishing his career at Veria in the Greek Super League, getting relegated in his final year. And looking back on his career, he was actually voted by Sam Sank on 90 Min blog. Um, as being part of the 18th worst central defensive partnership in Premier League history. It was a very long list. Um, he was partnered by David Samay. Yeah, the 18th oh, yes. worst. <laughs> I think it's maybe a bit harsh. He only conceded seven goals in his four Premier League games, but certainly didn't set the world alight. Let's talk about the yeah. kit. So um, it's I do, two. Th- I do wonder where. Sorry, can I just. Um, I do wonder where. Dean Leacock and Claude Davis featured on that. <laughs> yeah, I imagine they must have been near the top. I can't, I can't exactly say right now. Do look it up. Um, let's talk about the kit. So it's 2002 and we're heading into the African Cup of Nations in Mali with Cameroon as one of the favourites. This was a squad that contained a young Samuel Eto'o uh, and Jeremy of Chelsea. Um, and they turned up in this distinctive dark green vest rather than a full-on t-shirt kit. FIFA banned it with spokesman Keith Cooper saying, they're not shirts, they're vests, which is absolutely true, but probably not something anyone said angrily before. I just don't really understand why it's not okay. I didn't understand why it's not okay. They wear vests in athletics, like why can't they wear that in football? I think Puma were just trying to make a statement and obviously for some reason this broke some of the regulations at FIFA um, and Cameroon were so sort of incensed by the fact that this kit had been banned that they were not finished with FIFA. Two years later at the next African Cup of Nations they turned up in a kit that was actually a onesie. What? I don't know whether you've seen this but it's a one-piece football kit so the shirt is attached to the shorts it's all one thing. That is bizarre. It's bizarre. I mean, done up with I mean, a zip. Least, I, I think I can. I think I can see the benefit of wearing a vest. I mean, it's a, maybe a bit cooler, but I guess mm. a onesie would be quite warm while you're playing football. I don't get that. It, it, I think at this point they were just trying to rile up FIFA, and they certainly did. For they prodding. they received a, a fine of over one hundred and fifty thousand dollars and were docked six points from their World Cup qualifying group. Um, But in the end, actually, the kit manufacturer Puma fought it on their behalf and won the case. So it was released and uh, Cameroon were not penalised. Oh, that's good. (laughs) So, um, yeah, Lucien Matomo in one of the iconic national football kits of all time. Who's at right back, Arthur? So at right back, I've gone for Lee Dixon. (laughs) Lee Dixon, of course, known as a pundit now but um, a successful Indeed. footballer back in the day. Yeah, a very proficient right back um, and wearer of arguably the most memorable English kit of the 90s. Sometimes it, it's a top that people like to make fun of and sometimes it's considered a cult classic. It's Arsenal's away kit of the 1992-3 season. 
Mm, do, do you know the one? Yeah, I think I do know that one. It's the bruised banana. <laughs> I, do you know what, though? I actually quite like it. Yeah, so do I. I think it divides opinion. I think a lot of people, I mean, just to describe it for the listeners, it's um, a jersey that took its nickname from its strong black and yellow horizontal zigzag on obviously that iconic Arsenal yellow away kit. And so that's why it's called the bruised banana. I feel like when when going through the motions as to what defines a iconic kit, there's something to be said for the degree of success that the team have achieved in that kit. Yes. And Arsenal won the FA Cup and League Cup with stars like Ian Wright wearing it. And I think it's just inextricably linked with that success. So, So much so that Arsenal fans really do hold it in very high regard. Arsenal released a new version last summer um, and such was the appetite amongst supporters that the club's website crashed within minutes of it going on sale. <laughs> um, it's easy to say it's it's garish, it's borderline obnoxious, perhaps you could say. Um, <laughs> what I'm an obnoxious not... kit. <laughs> you can have an obnoxious kit. Can you? It just makes you go, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Can you turn your nose up at an obnoxious kit? <laughs> I still can't really make out whether I think it's ugly or beautiful, but I think that kind of enhances it as a kit in general. And one of its classic exponents was was Lee Dixon, um, part of a rock-solid Arsenal defence in the 90s. Lee was a childhood Man City fan uh, who began his footballing career as a youth player at Burnley before making his professional debut for them in 1982. From there, he played for Chester City in Bury before joining Stoke City in 1986 for a fee of 50 grand Um, his performances alongside Steve Bold attracted the attention of Arsenal and in January 1988 they both joined the Gunners for a combined fee of £765,000 and it was the following season as Dixon cemented his place in the team that Arsenal won their first league title in 18 years in a dramatic final game of the season against Liverpool and actually, it was Dixon's long ball over the top that unlocked the Liverpool defence and, and led to that 1-0 victory. Dixon's tenure at Arsenal saw him collect four league championship medals, uh, three FA Cup winner's medals and a UEFA Cup winner's medal. He was named in the PFA Team of the Year twice for 89 and 90. Uh, and his retirement came at the end of Arsenal's domestic double winning 2001-2 season, uh, their second during his time at the club. Actually, an interesting fact about Lee is that during his career, he played at 91 of the 92 Football League grounds. Which one did he miss out then? Oh, You're not going to guess this. That's wicked. What a great fact. Um, oh man, I'm not going to get this. I'm going to, I'm just going to have a guess then of Bloomfield Road. It's actually Craven Cottage is the one that he didn't play in, which surprised really? me because they were, they, they were a fairly good side at the time, but that's... he's never played at Craven Cottage. <laughs> That's fascinating. Not even in a pre-season game. They're quite close. No, bizarre. Wow. Another classic Dixon moment, I think, was his absolute worldy of an own goal in 1991 against Coventry. I it was seen just, It was art, Ben, art. He was under <laughs> pressure from Peter and Love uh, and his back pass to David Seaman was just an absolutely perfectly weighted lob. It's just a beautiful <laughs> goal to see. 
and obviously very memorable for Lee, sadly. Arsenal's corner. It's Dixon. Well, when it looked as though they would never find a goal, Dixon scored a fantastic one. So we thought it would be good to take a quick break from today's 11 to discuss the components of just what makes a great kit. Perhaps if we had to start a completely brand new team from scratch, what would their kit look like? What components of each of these iconic kits of past times would we take? Colour, pattern, manufacturer, sponsor, it's all on the table. Mm. Ben, what are your thoughts? Well, I think if we go through the anatomy of the football kit, Arthur, you start with the very top, the collar. Now, that for me is is all important. We've we've experimented with all sorts over the years. I've even seen Rangers' new anniversary kit has a side granddad collar, which is one of the most obscure types I think I've ever seen. Personally, I'm I'm quite old fashioned. I like a standard um, fold over collar. What about one of those very very old fashioned ones that uses kind of lacing? <laughs> no, I just think I think that's awful. It looks like a kind of something you'd put your dirty washing in. It's horrible. Perhaps a jockey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really don't like that at all. Um, no, laces are laces are for boots, not for kits. For me, it's it's got to be the fold over collar. And I think you know, once we've got the collar down, then it's what the hero pattern is because you can't have every pattern under the sun. People have tried that and failed with the likes of the the kind of Colombian goalkeeper kits over the years. So do you have a favourite pattern or shape? Spots. Incredibly <laughs> underrepresented. <laughs> I really don't think I can think of any kits that feature them. And perhaps Actually, that's for that's a reason. A, that's a I really good point. I can't I can't think of any any shirt with spots. If anyone knows of one, please get in touch with us at 11 Pod. Send us a picture and we'll we'll be sure to retweet. I've never we'll seen probably, a shirt with spots. We'll, we'll probably receive the picture and we'll be like, ah, yes. Now we oh, see why, yeah. why I forgot Man United. Yeah, it, yeah it'll be something like that. You're right. You know, uh, spots is an interesting shout. I was going to say, do you want vertical or horizontal spots? But that actually makes no difference, does it? Large or small spots. I feel like yeah. I feel like I'd like it. I'd like it like hundreds of thousands with okay. loads and loads and loads of spots. All Little over spot. I know you're quite fond of the chevrons, isn't that right? Yeah, I've long been a fan of the chevron. Um, I just think it's one of those things that you don't really get in any other walk of life. Like at, at no point during your upbringing did the teacher ever teach you what a chevron looked like. And actually, I can't think of a single item of clothing that has chevrons other than sports kit. So there's yeah. something about the chevron, which I almost feel like it belongs in football. Um, and it's almost a shame not to have a chevron. Is it usually one chevron or many chevrons? Many chevrons, I would say. I mean, I quite like the kind of front chevron uh, where the sort of logos sit. But actually, my preference is the Hummel style multiple oh, yes. chevron down the sleeve look. That's that's pretty smart. Um mm. I mean, I've never tried the sort of spot and chevron look, but I don't see why we couldn't try and combine those two. Isn't that the logo of Callaway Golf? Yeah. <laughs> it's just the chevron. Yeah, with it the is spot. actually. So they could be our sponsor of our kit. Yeah, Callaway, that's a good, really, yeah. 
And I think actually going for the Callaway sponsorship is a great way to avoid some of the many mishaps that we've seen with sponsors over the years. I'm thinking uh, the likes of Ed Sheeran sponsoring the new Ipswich kit. I absolutely loved Atletico Madrid's partnership in 2003 with Columbia Pictures. Um, <laughs> they, they, they had a sponsorship with the movie studio, which meant that their shirt sponsor was essentially a bit of a rolling advertising board each game. So they yeah. were sponsored on the front of their shirt by White Chicks, Terminator <laughs> 3, Hitch, Spider-Man 2, yeah. all sorts of all sorts of films like that. And Fernando oh. Torres sporting that top for Atletico Madrid lives, lives long in the memory. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that in a, in a way, that's quite charming. Um, but as much as sponsorship can go wrong, I do think there is a, a place for the sponsor on the kit. And actually, that was shown perhaps best by Getafe in the 09-10 season. Uh, that was worn by the likes of Kepa Blanco, in case you were wondering, where they actually had sponsorship on the inside of the chest of their kit. So they were sponsored by Burger King at the time, and they put the face of the Burger King mascot upside down within the shirt itself so that if you scored and peeled away to celebrate and <laughs> lifted your shirt up over your face you would have the mascot's face replacing yours on the shirt which i i thought was genius <laughs> color i'm a bit unfussed about color obviously it's very important for the identity of our club i do really like turquoise in a football kit um i'm thinking barcelona third kits from time to time um, at the Euros this year, Austria wore some pretty fetching turquoise shorts and socks. I quite like um, the sort of Roma maroon. Quite a big fan of that as a kind of identity. Quite like Palermo pink as well. But yes. um, I'm happy to settle with something like you're suggesting, a turquoise. Maybe a turquoise and pink. Oh, it's, it's, it's lovely. <laughs> it's too much. It's too much. It's too much. It's too much. <laughs> Okay, so defence, tick. Let's move on to the midfield. Um, it's 4-4-2, so we've got four across the midfield, starting with the left side. And I have picked Arthur, Pablo Barrera. Okay, that, that does not ring any bells at all. <laughs> but Arthur, he played for West Ham. He played uh, 14 games for West Ham, in fact. Um, <laughs> and they were, in, uh, they were in the Premier League, so... Um, you know, I'm sure it'll be ringing bells for some people, uh, but I actually wanted to pick up on his spell wearing an absolutely gorgeous kit for UNAM Pumas in Mexico. This was in 2016, 2017. Have you heard of that team, Arthur? Uh, do you know what? I think I have heard of them in the, in the context of excellent football kit chat. Mm. So I can't wait to hear about it. Yeah. I mean, it's always iconic, the UNAM Pumas kit. Um, just literally front and centre on the shirt is a Puma's head kind of stenciled into the kit. It's also gold, which makes it particularly impressive. I can't think of any other teams in the world, to be honest, that play in gold with a sort of navy Puma um, on the front. And they've had striking designs for years, but particularly in 1617, I think they got it just right. A lot of the patterns that surrounded the Puma's head in a kind of darker shade of gold 
were inspired by the outer walls of the UNAM Central Library and represent the beliefs of life, birth and Mexico's foundation, which I'm sure every drunk football fan was thinking when they picked up their shirt from the megastore. Did you see that kit and you were like, ah, yes, the library. (laughs) That's what I thought. I thought the decimal system, the Dewey system is in force here. Um, But actually, when I did digging, it was fascinating because UNAM is a club that represents a university in Mexico. It's not not really a phenomenon here, but um, the club represents the National Autonomous University of Mexico. Uh, and they play their home games in a 72,000-seater stadium on the main campus of the university. So, wow, really. That's rather like the rubber crumb at Exeter. It is. It is, isn't it? (laughs) And yet all these freshers on a night out are admiring the the beliefs of life, birth and Mexico's foundation on the kit. It's incredible. They've had some amazing talent over the years. Hugo Sanchez, Alberto Garcia Aspe and Hector Moreno, a few iconic Mexican names that have played for them. But Pablo Barrera should get a nod as well. He started his career at UNAM, um, but then he moved to West Ham in 2010 for four million pounds. So a fair bit of money. He made his Premier League debut on the 14th of August in a 3-0 loss to Aston Villa. And he actually only made six Premier League starts, scoring no goals and registering zero assists for the Hammers, unable to keep them out of the relegation zone where they ultimately succumbed to championship football. He was considered a flop by all accounts um, and he particularly annoyed the fans and the board at West Ham by suggesting that it was purely a stepping stone uh, in his first interview for the club and that actually he saw his future at bigger clubs in European football. Um, So that didn't go down hugely well and he sadly didn't deliver on the pitch. Honestly, that is a publicity 101. What are you doing? In your first interview, you should be you should be lying through your teeth and saying you grew mm. up in Mexico, always dreaming of pulling on the uh, claret and blue and, and all of that. <laughs> to say it's a stepping stone, that's awful. Oh. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Pablo did have talent, albeit the Premier League was a big step up for him. And the tricky winger resurrected his career back in Mexico with his starting club, UNAM. Uh, He was there for four years, starting in 2016. um, And he played more than 100 games for them, a key player in their squad, where they would finish sixth in the Apertura um, and actually 17th in the Clausura. So a bit of a bizarre a tale of mixed fortunes for them that season, but a beautiful kit and um, a player worthy of adorning it, even if he wasn't a West Ham legend. I do think there is something brilliant about seeing a kit that removes the club crest and turns the club crest into the kit. Yes. uh, Which is just a pretty special thing. I think I've seen that in a Lazio kit once where they uh, removed the, I think it's an eagle on the Lazio yeah. kit and turned it into the central theme of the kit. A very, very beautiful kit. And I yeah. thank you for introducing it into the squad. Wicked. Who's playing centre midfield alongside Pablo? Jeremy Goss. Oh, OK. I, I remember it vaguely. 90s? Yes, 90s Norwich midfielder. And he was aware of a kit that also divided public reaction. Um, it saw the kit disdainfully described by 
many people as the bird poo kit. Uh, and by Norwich fans quite distinctly as the egg and cress kit, which is a slightly, slightly more acceptable version, I'd say. It received its debut in 1992, which was the first season of the new Premier League. And it's a green and yellow graphic statement that caused a lot of sensation beyond the world of football and fanzines and actually just made the national press so interested non-football fans as well. It's yellow background with green splodges of sorts. Uh, and it still often ranks very highly in the list of, of worst football tops of all time. Although perhaps in keeping with my fashion, I, I do actually quite like it. I mentioned earlier that often a kit becomes iconic due to the success achieved in that kit. And with it making its debut in the 92-3 Premier League season, it was a memorable season for Norwich. They were amongst the pre-season favourites for relegation. And they found themselves at Christmas eight points clear at the top of the Premier League. Sadly, they did falter in the final weeks of the season to finish third behind Man United and Villa. However, that was enormous success for the club, given the pre-season expectations. And it truly achieved cult status for City fans on the evening of the 20th of October, 1993. And I'm going to take you back to that date because... That's a date where not only Norwich achieved success, but Jeremy Goss was the man to deliver it. Mm. Norwich were lining up against three-time European Cup winners Bayern Munich. After 12 minutes, a poor-headed clearance fell to curly-haired midfielder Jeremy Goss, who hit a stunning right-foot first-time volley past a rooted and bemused goalkeeper from 20 yards. Norwich won that match 2-1. They became the first club in British history, to win at the Olympic Stadium, which was Bayern Munich's home. Just to prove the result was no flash in the pan, Bayern were held 1-1 by Norwich in the second leg at Carrow Road, and Goss scored the goal in front of 28,000 fans to put his side through 3-2 on aggregate. They did lose in the next round, but such a victory was so unprecedented and so huge for a club like Norwich that He's gone down in folklore. Um, it's just an unbelievable image of him, you know, seemingly frozen in mid-flight, celebrating that goal in that iconic kit. And I think that's what makes it such a brilliant shirt. Yeah, really nicely put. It's those magic moments that people have experienced in kits that kind of brings them into the Hall of Fame and instills them in our memory. And certainly that was one of them. He did actually write an autobiography, Jeremy Goss, uh, and he named it Gossy, which is uh, not very inventive. That does seem a bit boring, especially as he, he was nicknamed Gosser, uh, which oh. was in reference to Gaza. Oh, um, okay. Clearly a talented midfielder. But he made 188 appearances for Norwich uh, and was known for scoring spectacularly, but not often. He was a brilliant volleyer of the ball. He scored a stunning volley against Leeds United at Ellen Road in the opening month of the 93-4 season that was voted goal of the month. And to this day, he describes it technically as the best goal he ever scored, even though it was an absolute beauty against Bayern. So a club legend for Norwich and the bird poo or egg and cress Norwich City <laughs> kit is a true stunner. And I think... It's a hallmark of a stunning kit if it is replicated once more, uh, like Arsenal did with the bruised banana. Norwich enjoyed that kit so much that they inverted its colours in a bit of a homage in the 
2016-17 third kit, um, which I think is glorious as well. So if you want your, want to get your hands on an iconic kit, then I would give that a very, very worthy consideration. Wicked. Egg and cress or cress and egg. It's up to you now in the Norwich club shop. Um, playing alongside Jeremy Goss in the centre of the midfield, I have gone for Wim Yonk. I don't... So the name Wim Yonk just walks <laughs> to me. I don't really it's, know it's why. It's because it's just the most fantastic name anyone has <laughs> ever come up with. Wim Yonk. Yeah. I love it. Um, and he wore the iconic Ajax away kit of 89-90. Now, this is sort of before our era, Arthur, but it really is a wonderful piece of design offset red white and blue checkerboard on a blue and white pinstripe background i mean you didn't think so many patterns were possible but they combine beautifully in this almost effortless era of easy kit uh, the simple tdk logo offsets nicely against it uh, and you can actually get a matching pair of socks from finalthird.com if you're interested in your retro footwear i really do suggest you check that out and i also like this kit because of the bizarre old iax logo i i absolutely don't remember iax having a, an old-fashioned logo but it's almost a sketch-like version of their existing one um, which is is very different and well worth a look. The season, like you said, Arthur, was a memorable one for the fans, and maybe that's why this kit has been heralded so much over the years. It was the 89-90 season, which saw Ajax win their first title in five years, finishing just one point ahead of PSV, who had Romario famously up front. Uh, and the team was filled with class players, the likes of Bergkamp, Blint, and players that Johan Cruyff had a huge role in developing. Ajax needed just one point on the final day to clinch the title. Uh, they went 1-0 down to NEC Nijmegen, um, but an equalising goal was enough to give them the Eredivisie title. And the scorer? Wim Yonk? Yeah, it was Wim Yonk. <laughs> <laughs> he was he was considered one of the elite players of world football in the early 90s. He started at Volendam, which actually is a bizarrely a stadium that I've been to in the Netherlands, not far outside okay. of Amsterdam. Um, and in his early 20s, he moved over to Ajax, merged seamlessly into their team uh, and scored some important goals, including one as they won the UEFA Cup in 1992. He'd actually score in a UEFA Cup final as well for Inter Milan in 1994. And that same year, he earned a place in the Dutch side that went to the World Cup, scoring twice in the major tournament against Saudi Arabia and Ireland. But people over here in the UK know him more for his brief spell at Sheffield Wednesday. He came over as a seasoned pro, somewhat controversially, signing for £2.5 million and he was a regular starter in what was a relegation-threatened side. Sadly, he couldn't keep them up. He was frequently injured, and whilst he was a class act at times, there was a feeling that his head and heart wasn't really in the game at Sheffield Wednesday. And fans were really annoyed that he used to receive £7,500 per game, even though he would miss them frequently through injury as a kind of game related contractual bonus so yeah Wim Yonk maybe not as popular in Sheffield as he was back in his native Netherlands 
a cracking player and a cracking kit, honestly. You don't associate Ajax so much with the colour blue. You see almost shades of Ipswich in that top half. Yeah, and boy. Cascading down into those bizarre checks. Uh, I think it's a, um, a very interesting kit. And Ajax themselves are very, very good at kits. I really, really enjoy their Bob Marley-inspired current third kit mm. with three little birds on the back of the collar. Very cool. Who's finishing off the midfield at right midfield, Arthur? So right midfield is a pick that's largely inspired by the club. Uh, and I've gone for Sydney Govu. <laughs> okay, I haven't thought about him for ages. <laughs> a bit of a random pick. And he's certainly known for his lengthy spell at Lyon. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of caps for France. But it's his spell at Evian Tonongaya that I would like to bring up. Okay. <laughs> so listeners may not know this, but I spent the 13-14 season working as an overseas football correspondent for the 11 in the city of Chambéry <laughs> in France. My local club turned out to be Evian Tonongaya, who played their home games in nearby Annecy. Um, they'd experienced a meteoric rise in recent seasons after their formation as Tonongaya in 2007, uh, so pretty late in the day, uh, following a merger between two local clubs. And they were promoted to the Championnat National, which is France's third tier, and then bought by Danone and rebranded Evian Tonongaya. Evian obviously being the water brand owned by Danone. That's interesting in and of itself, isn't it, Arthur? Because it would be quite bizarre for a, a club over here to be called Buxton Bolton or Strathclyde Celtic. It, it just wouldn't It wouldn't work. Then again, to take your idea and apply it to perhaps Salzburg becoming Red Bull Salzburg. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's... There was a time when Southampton were rumoured to be subject of a takeover bid from Red Bull and we were going to come, become the Red Bull Saints. And I'm quite glad oh, it didn't happen. There we go. <laughs> but Evian had an, a hell of a roller coaster around that time. They immediately secured double promotion, winning the Championnat National and then League Two in consecutive seasons. And then they achieved an impressive ninth place finish in their first season in League 1 before reaching the French Cup final the following year. Then I arrived in France and the wheels started to fall off, <laughs> narrowly avoiding relegation in the season I was there, although I did attend a credible draw with Lille, a Lille side that featured Salomon Kalou and Divock Origi. And they also beat PSG at home in December. Sadly, they were relegated the following season. Danone pulled their funding they suffered a second successive relegation and went into receivership before ultimately ceasing operations on the 9th of August, 2016. So uh, it, it was a club that went from 2007 to 16. It was up and down. But one thing they did have is an absolutely wonderful shirt, I think. You mentioned Palermo earlier. They've long since flown the flag for the colour pink. But Evian joined them. There's a fade effect on the pink. It gradually turns to white at the bottom of the shirt. And then there's also the sponsors. They obviously had a nod to Danette, which is the truly delicious yogurt made by Danone. But that doesn't mean that other brands didn't get a look in. The shirt had four further company names in various places. And I just, I just feel like it's the sheer 
unashamedness of such in-your-face advertising. But the yeah. shirt itself looks fantastic. It's got the Evian Mountains on the front of the shirt. Actually, I keep saying the shirt looks fantastic. In a 2013 survey conducted by L'Equipe, 90 players from 18 Ligue 1 clubs, uh, Lyon and Montpellier didn't participate, uh, were asked some questions. And they included, who's the most elegant player in Ligue 1? Uh, any guesses from that period of time, 2013? Uh, hmm. Stefan Sessegnon. <laughs> it's David Beckham, 49%. Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, they were asked what the worst pitch is. Uh, the majority went with Brest, 26%. What the best looking kit was. People thought PSG, 50%. And then the ugliest kit. You guessed it. Evian <laughs> one with 37%. So I feel like this whole episode, my taste has been well and truly brought into question. I, I don't know though, actually, because you're say, you're suggesting your bias, but I, I don't think it is that unpleasant and it's certainly iconic. I mean, I think the kind of the pink and the mountains makes for quite a pleasant combination, really, albeit a little bit babyish in its look. They didn't have many good players the one that most sticks in the mind for me is Daniel Vass who now plays for Valencia but it doesn't exactly tick the nostalgia box and that's the reason why I've gone for Sidney Govu who is a player who was certainly revered at Lyon but I just feel he's he's often very much overlooked he made 292 league appearances for Lyon he won seven league titles and mm. 49 international caps showing he's an absolutely exceptional player 49 caps really does show uh, what an excellent player he was. He was often criticised for his lack of composure. Uh, and I think perhaps that's what saw him shift deeper from centre forward to take up a position on the flanks. In his career, he showed immense loyalty to Leon. Uh, he became club captain and shunned interest from abroad, uh, allegedly from Newcastle. We could have seen him in the Premier League. And he was part of a, a Leon golden generation alongside players such as Gregory Coupe, uh, Juninho Penambuciano and Chris. I just, there's something about <laughs> Brazilians named just standard English first names that I love. So we had, they had Chris and Fred during that period of time. <laughs> Another exceptional player. He later had a stint at Panathinaikos and then a 32-year-old Govu made his way to Evian. Uh, and I think it was there that he provided his wealth of experience to the new league uh, arrivals. He scored only one goal in his 36 games for Evian, but it was a crucial 90th minute equaliser. And there's no doubt that his off-pitch influence was pretty huge. Yeah, I really like that shout, Arthur. I'm pleased to get Sydney into an eleven. Playing up front for the iconic kit 11, uh, we have an iconic player to start with, Hernan Crespo. Oh, brilliant shout. Well yeah. done. Getting a, him in there. An Argentinian striker with luscious long locks. Um, and he played for Palmer in the 1998-99 season, wearing a glorious home shirt that I wanted to talk about today. Italian kits are just so great, aren't they? I mean, AC Milan, Juventus, Fiorentina... Even the likes of Lecce and Brescia churn out some amazing kits um, each season. 
this is perhaps the best for me. There's there's nothing spectacular about the Palmer home kit in 98, but it was just iconic. The yellow and blue hoops seamlessly running into each other, sponsored by a local company, Parmalat, who are a, a dairy and food producer. And it captured a moment in time, a team at the peak of their powers, a side that have now faded away out of the limelight. But at that time, Parma were just so exciting. They won the UEFA Cup and the Coppa Italia in 98-99. They came fourth in Serie A to qualify for the Champions League. And the names in the team, Gianluigi Buffon, Fabio Cannavaro, Lillian Chiram, Juan Sebastian Veron, Mario Stanic and Enrico Chiesa. But the top goal scorer for Alberto Malasani's side that year was an Argentinian number nine, who at just 23 was only really starting his journey in European football. And that was Hernan Crespo. Um, he scored about 250 professional goals in around 500 games. Uh, I saw one of them actually uh, on a trip to the Medeski. That's about one goal every two games, so really quite a decent strike rate. And he scored consistently everywhere he went, including Lazio, Inter Milan, AC Milan and Genoa. So a lot of clubs in Serie A in Italian's top division. His 20 goals in 49 games for Chelsea, for me, is always one of the most understated records in English football. I actually thought, he was a great player. Did you have any assessment of him, Arthur? Yeah, I think he's unfairly remembered, I think, for his Premier mm. League stint. He was getting a little older at that time and still to score one in every two is impressive for a striker, no doubt. Just to quickly go back to the Palmer days, you neglected to mention the iconic Usman Dabo, who was part of that team. Yes, of course, yeah. Man City player. <laughs> he would go Indeed. on to be. And another favourite Italian kit of mine was the Sampdoria kit from 91. Yes. Um, Sampdoria. With Mancini and Viali. What a kit that was. Yeah. But this Parma kit really is lovely. Yeah, I, I really like this Parma kit. And I think yellow and blue hoops, as it is, is not really something that you get here in the UK. I mean, you could vaguely argue Shrewsbury, perhaps, but... Not really. I think it's pretty distinctive. During his time over here in the UK, like you said, Arthur, he was kind of criticised, I guess, for not being quite as impactful as as perhaps some fans expected when he joined for £16.8 million. But in reality, he actually managed to win the title at Chelsea, which is fairly impressive. He helped guide them there. Um, He had a decent strike rate and he scored some fantastic goals. My favourite was a wonderful left foot strike from distance against Wigan. He showed all of his pace, his tenacity, his power. He showed he was a complete striker who possessed good technique and composure in possession uh, and was able to finish well with both feet from whatever angle. He actually really enjoyed his time in Chelsea as well. Crespo told 442 magazine, professionally, it was great. The fans were unbelievable. The English have great respect for footballers and I love London. I would run all the way there if I had the chance to go back. So a nice bloke by all accounts, Hernan. So partnering him up front is a player generally considered the greatest Croatian striker of all time. It's Davor Suka. Oh, Davor. He's uh, worked his way into this 11, courtesy of 
the absolutely stunning Croatia 98 World Cup kit. The kit, unsurprisingly, was designed by a genuine artist. Miroslav Sutej was an avant-garde Croatian painter who also designed the country's coat of arms, as well as the design of the country's banknotes. His coat of arms design featured a red and white chessboard, which became incorporated into the national football team's shirt and thus gave it an incredibly distinctive look. I think when everyone thinks of Croatia, the country, we all think of that red and white chessboard, that football kit. It's a long-standing national symbol. Do you have any idea why, Ben? I don't, and I've, I've always wondered, because it, it features on the flag, but only very loosely. So I'm going to take you back to a legend, which mm. is that former King Stephen of Croatia was able to make a miraculous escape, having been caught by enemy forces during a war with the Venetians, thanks to a series of chess matches. Ah. An agreement was struck that if the Croatian king could win three straight matches against the Venetian Doge, he would be freed. He did just that and added a chessboard to the Croatian coat of arms in honour of that memory. That's (laughs) mad. I love that story. (laughs) Completely bizarre. But anyway, the kit manufacturer, Lotto, decided to add their own unique feature, which was that the chessboard would be angled differently, giving the impression of the red squares descending diagonally downwards from the right sleeve to the shirt's centre. The rest of the shirt was plain white, with blue and red trim at the end of each sleeve and on the collar. And leading the line for that iconic Croatian team was Suka, whose left foot was an absolute wand. He was a precise and graceful finisher, something made incredibly clear when he chipped the commanding Peter Schmeichel during a 3-0 win over Denmark in the European Championships. Uh, That was two years before this World Cup campaign. But for the World Cup, he scored five in qualifying and then he scored six goals in Croatia's seven World Cup games. Uh, He won the golden boot as they sensationally finished third and their first World Cup appearance since becoming an independent nation. For the bulk of his career, he was in Spain. He spent time with Sevilla and Real Madrid, scoring over 100 La Liga goals before heading to England for a not particularly successful spell. Do you remember his time in England at all, Ben? I remember him being underwhelming for Arsenal. And then he went on to West Ham, where he was even more underwhelming. But Mm. I feel at that stage in his career, there wasn't an awful lot expected of him. I think he was in his mid to late 30s when he signed for West Ham. So it was a weird way to see out his career. But he's without doubt a Croatian legend. Uh, He grabbed 45 goals in his 69 appearances for Croatia and one in his two for Yugoslavia. Wow. So... um, a prolific marksman. For two nations. Love it. Asanovic now as the Croatian side comes right out. And Suker for the goal! Sukerman! 
So as we said earlier in the show, we do have one position up for grabs and it's the centre back to play alongside Lucian Matomo. Thankfully, we've got two brilliant guests who are going to give nominations. Starting with this one, it's Josh Chapman, who is known on Twitter as The Kitsman. A fantastic page. Loads of people follow him already. Do please get over to Twitter and make sure you follow Josh. Lots of great kit pictures, recommendations, news articles, features, comments, the lot. Uh, And this is who he wants to nominate as a centre-back for the iconic Kit 11. So this was a 2009-2010 Newcastle United away shirt by Adidas. Um, Most people would uh, describe it as the custard cream kit. Most Newcastle fans called it that. Also looks a bit like a Solero, actually. If you'd have mauled it and left it on the side... That is what this kit looks like. Off-white and mango-y striped disaster piece. Uh, worn famously in our championship season. Went to go actually see the tune uh, at uh, Hillsborough actually on Boxing Day with it being worn. I remember Jonas Gutierrez wearing this like Under Armour which was neon yellow which just added to the beautiful aesthetics. Modelled perfectly by Stephen Taylor, an absolute Geordie through and through, through his body at the ball. I think even, for my most famously, his face, uh, if memory serves me right, he was he was quite happy clanging into the odd post now and again. Just shows you what he would do for Newcastle United Football Club. And I remember the promotional imagery was of Stephen Taylor and Habib Bay, two absolute stalwarts there, showing off the kit to be bought in its droves. Not. Yeah, Stephen Taylor, that, that kit, he literally looks like an omelette posing in it. It's <laughs> unbelievable. It's not dissimilar to a recent Scottish away kit that I actually quite enjoyed, but for some reason... This Newcastle kit wasn't my favourite. No, don't don't love it at all. But um, a great nomination, nevertheless. Joining him on the poll over on Twitter is a nomination from Tom Slater. Now, Tom Slater is a massive football shirt collector. You can find him on Twitter, the football shirt fan. He's called shirt underscore fan. Uh, But he's also a talented writer. He writes for Kit Magazine, uh, which is well worth checking out too. Let's see who he is going to nominate. So I've picked a centre-back and kit pairing so iconic that I know for a fact when I say green braids and Inter Milan's grey hoot third kit from the 97-98 to season, you've already got to Rebo West in your mind. He was hard tackling and a legend of championship manager, but when he strutted out in the 1998 UEFA Cup final, he was wearing probably the pinnacle of most kit aficionados' dream collection. It was a kit only used in the UEFA Cup campaign that year by Inter, the same campaign that saw Ronaldo star and Taribo was sent off in the 3-1 final victory over Serie A rivals Lazio. It was the crowning achievement in West Inter career, a season after he had won gold for Nigeria at the 1996 Olympics. But for a man as famed for his eccentric hairstyles as he was his surging runs and ball-winning prowess, you'd be hard-pushed to find a more sotorily excellent combination than Taribo West and this iconic Inter Milan kit. Thank you, Tom. Taribo West, Arthur. An excellent pick. He's featured already in the Journeyman eleven. The hair was iconic, so to add the kit to the mix is a truly special nomination. Cheers, Tom. Thank you. Arthur, anyone that you want to add into this Twitter poll? I'd like to throw Alexi Lalas into the mix. I thought you might. 
<laughs> of course you did. When the World Cup rocked up in the US in 1994, Adidas and US soccer wanted to produce a memorable kit for the hosts. They certainly managed it with this shirt that was supposed to look like denim. Mm. It's a bit bizarre. It was originally intended to be made of denim as well. Uh, <laughs> it's actually, horrible. Then, when the players were first shown it, Alexi Lalas assumed that it was a prank, later admitting, I'd be lying if I said people weren't looking around for a hidden camera. And yet the denim print, which was literally photocopied from the original design with floating stars on it, <laughs> has since come to represent that tournament perfectly. It's brash, it's wild, and it's very, very memorable. Mm. And Lalas himself was iconic. He had so much hair in the form of a lengthy ginger beard and flowing ginger locks. His playing style was characterized by physical ability and endurance. He stood at six foot three, uh, so he made for a very imposing defender. And he had 96 caps for the US, enjoying his most successful playing days at LA Galaxy, playing alongside David Beckham and winning the MLS Cup in 2002. But I just wanted to give a nod to this excellent kit. It's um, truly despicable, but also great. It's quite hard to describe, mm. really. Yeah. I mean, it's a monstrosity in many ways, but um, it had to be mentioned at some point on this show. Uh, and the final name that's going to be on that Twitter poll, do head over to at 11 pod, uh, the word, not the number, where you can place your vote. Uh, the final player is David May. Oh, is this the, uh, this is Man U grey kit? Yeah, spot on, Arthur. 95-96 Man United away kit. It's 50 shades of grey, but without any of the sexiness, really. Just a kind of weird mottled marl stitching effect paired up with these charcoal pinstripe shorts. I mean, not even David Beckham looked good in it. It was absolutely vile. Um, and it, it kind of hit the headlines for the wrong reasons as well. In 1996, Man United travelled to the Dell to play your side, Arthur. Um, they found themselves 3-0 down at half-time. And Alex Ferguson made the excuse that the reason that United were playing so poorly that day was that they couldn't see each other properly in the kits. Ferguson decided to insist that his players got changed at half-time uh, and when they jogged out for the second half, they were wearing an alternate blue and white number. And in fact, their performance did improve. Um, it wasn't enough to turn around the score completely, but it did end 3-1 after a late Ryan Giggs goal. So maybe, just maybe, Ferguson did have a point. But one of the subs that did come on was David May that day, brought on in the 54th minute um, to play in that god-awful um, kit. Well, in fact, he was warming up in the god-awful kit, but when he came on, it was the blue and white kit, of course. So I'm sure he wore that grey kit at some other point during the season anyway. Um, he is perhaps one of the worst ever players to have won a Champions League involved in the 1998-99 season. Um, but that's not to say he was a poor player. He did make 85 caps for Manchester United. He won two Premier League titles, two FA Cups, a Champions League and two charity shields, prompting the chant, David May, superstar, got more medals than Shearer, which doesn't quite rhyme. It, maybe they did superstar, got more medals than Shearer. I think you'd have to, wouldn't you, to make that work? 
But despite all that silverware, he never played for England. David May, I think, worthy of a position in the iconic Kits eleven. On the bench, the players who didn't quite make the cut, or the kits in this case, uh, I'd like to bring up the international strips of Brazil in 1970, England 1966, Italy 1982. Quite a lot of these international kits from bygone eras are just so iconic. And also another nod to Cultural Leonesa, a club who in 2014-15 had kits that were essentially tuxedo printed shirts and I think a kit that I would quite like to purchase it would be quite fun to you know bring it out on a Sunday morning football session (laughs) yeah or even for a black tie event who knows (laughs) um yeah I think I think Arsenal's maroon kit for celebrating the end of their time at Highbury maybe deserves a nod 0506 Uh, and Australia's home kit for the, the 1990 international matches which was this sort of mad yellow number with green and white dashes Um, but I think your Norwich kit was better so I haven't put that one in the 11. Thanks so much for listening everyone do please remember to get in touch with us if you've thought of a kit that we haven't Uh, but this is our iconic kits 11. Uh, In goal it's Pavel Cernicek at left back Razvan Rat centre half one is up for grabs, the other one, Lucian Matomo, and at right back, Lee Dixon. Across the midfield, we have Pablo Barrera, Wim Yonk, Jeremy Goss, and we have Sidney Govu. And up front, we have Hernan Crespo and Davor Suka. Thank you very much for listening. Listener.